This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast, and thank you for listening. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and this special episode is going to take us out to San Antonio, Texas, to the annual meeting of the American Educational Research Association. There, the Special Interest Group on Research in Mathematics Education, SIGRME, had their business meeting and had special remarks shared by the Distinguished Scholar Award winner from 2016, and that award winner was Dr. Paul Cobb from the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt University, and he's one of the most highly cited scholars in our field. Dr. Cobb gave remarks on the topic of what does it take to support improvements in the quality of mathematics teaching on a large scale, and we are lucky enough to listen into those remarks because they were captured for us by Janine Remillard. So thanks, Janine. And so next up, you'll hear Dr. Cobb talking about that question, what does it take to support improvements in the quality of mathematics teaching on a large scale? And what I'm going to talk about tonight what kind of pompous title, right? You're not actually going to get the answer. This is the question we've been struggling to address for the past 10 years or so. And so I want to sort of give an overview of that. But in many ways, as it usually is, there's a whole raft of people behind this work, and I will try and make that clear. But I'm kind of the front man. It's very nice to get an award, but understand there's a lot of other people involved in this as well who deserve a, a lot of the credit. So... What I want to do is explain how we went about addressing this question and then just give you a flavor for some of the things that have come out of this work, some of the findings. So that's the idea. So how, how did we go about it? Well, we worked by establishing long-term partnerships, researcher-practitioner partnerships in the true sense of the word, initially with four large urban districts for four years, 2007 through 2011. And as part of that work, we gave them uh, targeted analyses to inform the revision of their instructional improvement strategies. Then we continued on with two of the districts, and this was our choice, because we wanted to work with them even more closely. In addition to doing those analyses, we also wanted to investigate some of our conjectures around coaching and around school leadership in particular by co-designing and co-leading professional development for coaches and principals. So that was the sort of broader context in which we did this work. And this is back in the day now, because this project this went for 10 years, just finishing up. I can see my colleague Aaron laughing. Uh, we're recruiting these districts in 2005 and 2006. So this was right in the teeth of No Child Left Behind for urban districts. And we specifically were able to recruit at that time four districts, obviously not in our home state, we had to travel, but they were rather courageous people. They had many of the issues and opportunities typical of urban districts. But they were atypical in a couple of respects. They were aiming far higher than the then low-level state tests. The reason was, as they told us very explicitly, if kids do well on those tests, they probably won't get into college. And if they do get in, they probably won't do very well when they're there. So we've got to aim a lot higher. They were focusing and investing in supporting teachers to improve the quality of their instruction. And they also understood that just focusing on teachers' learning wasn't going to be enough. And so they were also thinking about how they could support principals in becoming more effective instructional leaders. The reason why we wanted to work with such districts is so we could forge a common agenda with them. 
so it could be a genuine partnership. So we worked to do research with rather than just on the districts. Uh, the idea in the context of these partnerships, what we were trying to do was to develop a theory of action for instruction improvement at scale, where a theory of action comprises a set of policies or strategies for supporting teachers, but also others' learning, including district leaders, as it so happens, together with a rationale for why it's reasonable to expect those strategies to pay off, to be effective. So that's what we tried to do. Tom Smith and I, when we first started out, he's shrugging and looks at the floor, uh, read uh, literature in math education. Tom's background, I should say, is in policy and leadership and we were attempting to bridge between those two areas. So we read extensively, and to just to develop some initial conjectures, to put some ideas up there of possible uh, strategies that we could then work from, disprove or whatever. The only thing I want to say is they were pretty broad focus, extending all the way from curriculum and so forth, out to district leadership. So we're taking a very broad perspective on the system. Uh, looking back, a lot of the ideas weren't completely wrong-headed, but they were very vague, they were very general, they were very abstract and not particularly useful. So part of one way to think about what we've been doing is trying to claw our way up to the level of concrete practice. And that's been a hard slog. And then in working with the districts, we were going to test, revise and elaborate these conjectures and it can provide that sort of context. And so now I want to talk about how we work with the districts to do that, to test and revise our conjectures, while also hopefully adding value to their instruction improvement efforts. So, when we started with the districts, and this is when we had four districts beginning, we said to the district leaders, we don't just want to tell stories about a few schools. We want to give you feedback on a set number of schools that will be representative of all of your schools. And I should stress we work just on middle schools. So grades six, seven, and eight is the grade level we focused on. So as you look across, we would like a set of schools that are represented, represented the district's capacity for improvement. So we want some of the stronger schools, we want some of the weaker schools, some of the middle schools. We don't just want all the weak schools or all the strong schools. And they helped us select the schools. Mostly it was six schools a district. One district had very small school, so it was 10, and then we recruited, as randomly as was possible, 30 teachers approximately in each district, 120 teachers, and then also the coaches, school leaders responsible for math, principal and sometimes an assistant principal, and district leaders across five units that have a stake in what goes on in math classrooms. So it's 50 folks per district, 200 altogether. When we went down to two districts, we doubled the number of schools and the number of teachers and so forth. So it was still 200 folks, but now 100 in each of two districts. And what we did each year to try and add value was go through this cycle in each district each year. So in October of each year, we go to the districts, and our goal was to understand what were the district's current improvement strategies. And we interviewed approximately 10 district leaders in curriculum instruction, including math and in leadership. And we boiled that down and wrote it up in a document, just three or four single-space pages. And we say, here's what we heard as the first plank or the first strategy, the second, the third. And try and get it down to three or four. 
and we'd send it to them and say, did we get this right? It was important we get agreement on this because this was going to be the basis for everything we did as we worked with the districts that school year. So we got agreement before Christmas on what the district strategies are. That would also influence some of the data collection we did because between January and March, we did a large data collection, the goal of which was to try and document how those strategies were actually playing out in schools and classrooms. A big part of it was we conducted audio interviews with all of our participants. So 50 in a district, 200, or 100 in a district, 200. And the focus, if we focus on just the teacher interviews, was to truly understand what's it like to be a teacher in this district. What's your context like, your working environment? What are you held who holds you accountable? What are you held accountable for? What do you perceive yourself to be accountable for? What sources of support can you draw on formally and informally, and so forth? In addition, we did a whole, collected a whole bunch of other data, but this was for the retrospective analysis that we do after that year was over. I will just mention that we videotaped two consecutive lessons in each teacher's classroom, so 240 videos a year. The coaches and the teachers took the mathematical teach, uh, knowledge for teaching assessment, video recordings of professional development, audio, and then this is Lanny's part, video recordings of teacher collaborative time, which was critical, online assessments of teachers' Uh, networks, and that was all the teach math teachers in the participating schools. And finally, we had access to the student achievement data. The districts would supply that to us, obviously, just by class, not by student, to de-identified. So that was the retrospective analysis. For the cycle each year, we focused primarily on the interviews. And then between February and May, we did an initial analysis of those 200 interviews and we were attempting to sort of synthesize and boil it down to identify gaps, if you like, between what the districts hoped would happen and what was actually happening and also explain why. And I'm not going to get into how we did that, but we came up with a little framework we called the learning design framework to support us in doing that. And when we developed a detailed report, it was built on that initial document that these are the strategies this year. And we say, here's plank one. Here's how it was actually playing out. Here's how we, why it was playing out, or why we think it was. And then make very specific, actionable recommendations for how the districts might revise that strategy to make it more effective. And these would be about 15 pages single-spaced. And we send that back, and then in May, we would meet with district leaders um, to talk through the findings and the recommendations in about a two-hour meeting. By the end, these meetings became sort of pretty major events for the districts. The reason why we had to do it by May is because districts make plans for the following school year over the summer. So we had to get in there at the end of the previous school year uh, ahead of that. So that's the sort of basic way of working. When we went back the following October, and ask what are your strategies this year, we could then check on to what extent the districts were picking up on our recommendations. And my colleague Aaron Hendrick has actually gone back and done an analysis to find out what was going on there. 
It turns out, if you look, call it, across all districts all years, they were attempting to pick up and attempted to implement 67% of our recommendations. Obviously, there was variation between districts and across years and so on. And she's also got, I think, some interesting conjectures about what it was that influenced whether a particular type of conjecture got picked up or not. So if you think about what we were doing, we were attempting to do design studies, but at the level of a district rather than at the level of a classroom or a teacher group or something like that. So each of those sort of squiggle things is an annual cycle. So if we look at District A in the first year, we do our cycle and have to sort of do the analyses. The recommendations we make at the end are influenced by the current iteration of our theory of action. But when you're doing this kind of work, it's that you're in a very concrete situation, you have to take account of current district capacity. That concentrates the mind wonderfully when you have to come up with actionable recommendations. That's a context for our learning. At that time, initially, very context-specific. But then something we figure out there might also be relevant to the feedback we give District B, depending on what their concerns and issues are. Once the dust settles at the end of that round in May or June, we step back and look at what we've learned and to what extent does this have implications for, in fact, revising the theory of action. So as it goes with design research, this is very much a bootstrapping methodology. Well, let me just acknowledge all the people involved. Uh, I already mentioned uh, the, sort of most of the principals. Aaron, who was the project manager. And the amazing thing is, I mentioned all the data we collected. We basically had 100% success in all aspects of data collection in every year. And she's the person who made it happen. Lanny, who has been working with us for the last five years as part of this effort, focusing very specifically on teacher collective time. I'm not going to talk about those findings today, but very, I think, interesting stuff. Tom Smith, I mentioned. Kara Jackson, who was initially a postdoc for the first five years and then became a PI in the second five years. Ken Frank, who focuses on teachers in formal networks. And then a whole bunch of postdocs and doctoral students, most of whom have gone over the wall, a few of whom are here tonight, <laughs> and are now having a much more rewarding life, they tell me. Uh, <laughs> so that's the cast of characters. So what does this quote, theory of action, all sounds very grand, doesn't it, uh, look like? The core of it is co coherent instructional system with a big nod to Tony Bright and Fred Newman. In the center, little blue circle, the driver of the whole thing, are the goals for students' mathematical learning. And in this group, I think I can just say we're talking here obviously about very ambitious goals, uh, conceptual understanding, problem solving, generalizing, and so on and so forth. Rigorous goals, and then a vision of what counts as high quality math instruction that can be empirically justified in terms of supporting students' development or attainment of those goals. And that we take as the core, and then we map out to the other aspects of the coherent instructional system. So curriculum and assessments that are aligned with that instructional vision and might even be educative for teachers. And curriculum includes instructional materials, but district curriculum frameworks, state standards, and so forth whatever resources that they use in terms of their planning. 
at the top, we've come to talk of a teacher learning subsystem. In other words, a system of supports for teachers to improve their instruction. Pull-out PD, teacher collaborative time, <coughs> mathematics coaching and teacher networks. And pretty early in this work, it became very clear that it was important these be coordinated as a coherent system of supports. And finally, we've pulled out supplemental supports for currently struggling students. That was not on our scope at all when we initially began working with the district. And everybody here who works in schools is fully aware that when you actually go into schools, pretty much most schools are figuring out uh, how to support additional kids who are currently struggling. And at least in our district, what was happening was not pretty. And we saw this as a hugely important issue. People get upset when I say this, but we scanned the literature about four years ago, are currently scanning it again, and we're finding next to nothing that's actionable at the district level when, the goal, when you're aiming ambitious instructional goals. The research base is extremely thin. And so like we see that, that's why we wanted to pull that out and highlight it as a pressing need. And then beyond this, where again, I'm trying to emphasize how the piece is critical, not we tend to focus on the individual pieces, but also how they fit together or work together in a coherent manner, is the role of school leadership. And we see a primary goal there for school leaders is not to support or work with teachers directly, but to indirectly support their learning by working to stand up such a system at the campus level, by, for example, collaborating with coaches and supporting the work of coaches, which we know really affects how effective coaches are and so forth, and moving out still further, district leaders, and we're going to argue in a minute that primary, we would see a primary goal for district leaders is to support the development of school-level capacity for improvement. Now, what I'm going to do is just focus, as time allows, on just two aspects of this theory of action. I'm going to focus on the part very close to practice, right in the middle, and then I'm going to talk about that for a while, and just to give you some idea of the scope, and then talk about, for just a couple of minutes, about our findings as they relate to district instructional leadership. So first of all, zooming into close to practice, we use the instructional assessment instrument uh, developed by Melissa Boston, uh, Lindsay Clare, Matt Samura and colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh. And we were, when we were looking around for instruments to use about 10 years ago, we chose this one because it seemed to be focusing or trying to assess the quality of student learning opportunities, not merely teacher performance, to what extent was it consistent with NCTM principles and standards or whatever. And the logic of it is it assesses the potential of tasks that teachers has decided to use as they are, quote, on paper, and then looks at the, how those are actually enacted or implemented in the classroom. I think this was based on the uh, Quasar project, where a finding was that teachers tended to proceduralize high-level tasks, so to what extent does the teacher maintain the level of rigor, what's the quality of the whole class discussion, and so forth. And without going into it, here's a simplified version of one of nine rubrics. This one's for task potential. And you can see it's just a four-point rubric at the bottom, just as the task. Basically, 
can a child, a student be successful by memorizing facts and rules and, and so forth up to the top doing mathematics. The big shift, I think everybody who's used this assessment will tell you, is between a two and a three. Two is standard, uh, using specified or demonstrated procedures. Three is using procedures with connections. In other words, it's asking for uh, the rationale for understanding why particular procedures work. Clearly, not all the way there, but that shift from procedures to connecting procedures to underlying concepts turns out to be pretty uh, significant. So that's how we were coding those videos, and we ended up coding 1,700 of them. So we've got quite a large database. We also, I mentioned the mathematical knowledge of the teaching for coaches and for teachers. We also found it, and we had no intention of doing this when we started, developing some additional measures ourselves. And I want to briefly outline those and some of the findings, because we're interested in the relation between these different types of measures. The first one is the vision of high-quality math instruction, we call it VHQMI, and it really rolls off the tongue after <laughs> Chuck Munter is the fellow who developed this and took the major lead. Started this when he was a doctoral student. Basically, it's an interview-based measure. So we asked all of our participants, we do this with district leaders, school leaders, as well as teachers, suppose you go into a math classroom, you can stay as long as you want. What would you look for to know if it's high-quality instruction? And we probe when they use words that have multiple meanings, problem solving, understanding, concepts, rigor, whatever it is, engagement. And then if they don't bring it up, we have a probe. The first one's around the nature of the task. Well, if it's high quality instruction, what would might a task look like? Could you give me an example of a, a task if it's high quality? The same for the nature of whole class discussions, both who's doing the talking and what they're talking about and finally, what's the teacher's role? They'll often we get facilitated. What if the teacher's facilitating well? What will be some of the specific things he or she might be doing? And then this gets formally coded. And we have coders come in, do that, and all these, that strip of all the interviews, and interrelator reliability, and so on and so forth. So this is VHQMI. And some of the findings around that, looking across the years, first four years, their visions did improve in the aggregate. Fine. But it also turns out that it appears that improvements in their visions was a leading indicator of improvements in the quality of their instruction. Meaning, in the aggregate, teachers who had relatively sophisticated visions of high-quality instruction in year one were more likely to have improved the quality of their instruction by year four, for those that stayed in our sample. In addition, teachers' visions, and just based on what they say in these interviews, was related when we looked and coded their video-recorded classroom instruction to whether they selected cognitively demanding tasks or not. I should mention three of the four districts had adopted Connected Math 2, but teachers could opt out, of, might go on the web and get something else, or might skip the more challenging parts of tasks or whatever and also whether they maintain the level of challenge of those tasks throughout the lesson. So it appears to be predicting something in terms of whether teachers are likely to improve. And I think this makes sense, particularly the leading indicator. 
It's very hard to develop a form of practice if you have no idea what it looks like, of what you're working towards. So what we're really saying here is as simple as that. Now, a second measure we developed was views of students' mathematical capabilities, VSMC. Kara Jackson was the lead person on this. The whole crew was involved. She headed it up. Again, interview-based. Two aspects to it. So, diagnostic aspect. Ask the teachers if they've got any students who are currently struggling. And at least when I was doing the interviews, the teachers typically laugh or chuckle and say yes. And so we are just try and ask, who are those students? Is it poor students, kids whose language, first language isn't English? Who is it? And then, following up by asking, the core part of it is, what do they see as the reasons for why those students are currently struggling? And it gets coded on a five-point scale. One end we label as unproductive, and that basically uh, the teacher would attribute the student's current struggles to inherent limitations of the student or deficits of their family or their community. And the reason why we call that unproductive is something entirely beyond the teacher's locus of control. The teacher perceives it that way. Productive would be they would talk about relations between the student and instruction. So they would talk about prior schooling opportunities, about prior instruction, about current struggles they're having as a teacher right now in serving that student effectively or whatever. So that would be productive. So that's the diagnostic. And the prognostic aspect of it is to ask what are they doing to support those students right now? Unproductive end of the, of the coding would be that they lower the level of cognitive demand, they proceduralize, they skip tasks, they break it down into bite-sized pieces and so on and so forth. The productive end would be how they talk about uh, supporting the kid to engage in rigorous tasks. So they might pre-teach some of the uh, concepts so that the kids can understand and begin to engage with the task, that sort of thing. What we found, if we look across, is not very pretty. In terms of looking across our t the teachers in these four districts, in terms of how they actually <coughs> explain students' struggles or difficulties, less than 20% attributed them to stalling or instructional limitations, to lack of opportunity. Almost 30% attributed them solely, exclusively, to deficits of students, families, communities. So this is not good news. And as a consequence, less than 20% describe making productive adjustments. So I would imagine this is, again, we certainly didn't sort of have a set of four representative districts, but there's no reason to believe that they're particularly atypical. Does it matter? Well, even after we control, again, this is formally coded, interrelator reliability and so on, after controlling both for MKT and for the HQMI, that division thing, so we factored that out, this measure still indicates that teachers who have, have productive views of their students' current mathematical capabilities are more likely to maintain the cognitive demand of tasks, they're more likely to conduct higher quality whole class discussions, and I almost want to say sadly, there's an interaction with uh, the racial, ethnic, and linguistic compositions of the classes they were teaching. In other words, for us, in the 
given the nature of the districts we worked, a low percentage of underserved, traditionally underserved students would be 50%. goes up to well over 90%. As that percentage in, of students increases, the strength of the relationship between VSMC and the quality of whole class discussions of the maintenance of cognitive demand increases as well. So as teachers are teaching classes with a higher percentage of students from these groups, it becomes increasingly critical. The development of productive VSMC becomes increasingly critical. In addition, I mentioned before that VHQMI, the vision thing, is a leading indicator of teachers improving their instruction. It turns out it's not enough. In addition, it's also important teachers have developed productive VSMC. Why is that? We can have teachers who can articulate, can explain uh, in a pretty sophisticated manner what high-quality, uh, ambitious instruction looks like. But then they say, well, that's not appropriate for my students. It's also essential that teachers view that form of instruction as beneficial for their students. We sometimes forget what a huge ask it is when we ask particularly experienced veteran teachers to really radically reorganize how they teach, make fundamental reorganizations. Unless there's will and agency on the teacher's part, it's just not going to happen. And this finding from Charlotte Dunlap tells us that uh, indicates that unless teachers both have an image of what they're aiming for and they view it as appropriate for their students, uh, it's very unlikely that their instruction will improve. There was one case, but it was kind of a fluky thing, but basically it's very unlikely. This to me influenced me and how I'd want to go about organizing PD and a system of supports for teachers. I'd want to focus initially not on mathematical knowledge for teaching or uh, students' mathematical thinking. I'd want to focus initially on these two aspects, pedagogies of investigations, developing an image of high-quality instruction, and very, very explicitly developing activities or whatever that focused around the appropriateness of that form of instruction for the teachers, the kids that the teachers are teaching right now. That seems pretty critical. What does so what all this mean? Don't want to be misinterpreted here. Clearly, mathematical knowledge for teaching really matters. It's really important, solid empirical evidence. The folks involved, Heather Hill, Deborah Ball, Hyman Bass, and so on, have kind of set the standard in what is required of a solid measure, and it's been very influential. But I was on a panel a couple of panels at NSF reviewing proposals and I was struck by the number of proposals that were all about VS, uh, VH, uh, too many acronyms, uh, MKT. It's important, but it's not the world, uh, is what I'm try we're trying to say here. It's also important to these other things. Why? Because teachers have reason and motivation to improve the quality of instruction. Also related, the level of challenge of together, level of challenge of tasks, to extent to which they maintain that level of challenge, and to extent to which they elicit and build on their students' thinking. These things are important, and I would guess this isn't the whole picture either. I'm thinking back, us old fellows can think back 25 years quite easily, 
And I'm thinking back to Tom Carpenter and Elizabeth Fenner and their work on CGI, Cognitively Guided Instruction. And I had some pretty solid findings indicating the importance of teachers understanding how their kids' thinking can develop in particular strands of mathematics around particular concepts. They focused on elementary math. So in other words, I'm talking about teachers' knowledge of student learning trajectories. Again, that's not the whole world either, but it's something, could we find, could we construct measures? I know J.R. Comfrey's been working very hard along these lines. So how does that fit into the bigger scheme of things here as well? That seems pretty critical, and it's not on our scope right now. But I would say it's an oversight. Maybe there's other things. So that's the piece in the middle where we're focusing on goals. What I will say, and this is the shameless part, we're actually trying to put together a book right now, and this is the whole crew, who, all that mass of names, uh, people who contributed to the work, where there's sort of chapters on each of these various pieces. So there's ten chapters. So that was what was in the opening chapter, talking about uh, that finding. Here's the last piece, which is about uh, district instructional leadership. I remember when I first said many years ago I wanted to go in this direction, a very senior colleague said, well, that's just politics. So I want to see if I can convince you it's not just politics, and maybe we need to broaden our perspective, our purviews as math educators, and what are appropriate questions. Our primary contention is that uh, a goal uh, for district instructional leadership should be to support uh, the development of school capacity for instructional improvement. And rather than talking about district leaders as a sort of monolithical group, we find it helpful to differentiate between curriculum instruction within the district central office, which includes the folks in mathematics who are responsible for uh, provide, designing, pro leading, providing professional development, developing curriculum frameworks, uh, supporting the work of math coaches and so on and so forth, and the leadership department who are responsible for hiring, for assigning principals and assistant principals to school buildings, for monitoring, going out to schools, monitoring, working with them, supporting them and so on and so forth. And then above them, senior district leaders, the superintendent, the chief academic officer, and, and so on. What we find, not invariably, but very, very frequently indeed, is that folks in curriculum instruction, including math, and folks in leadership are on different pages. They're pursuing different agendas. It's also come, becoming clear that matters. It matters for principals, workers, instructional leaders, it matters for whether there's time available for coaches to work with teachers rather than, say, uh, organized tutoring programs or uh, analyzing test data or whatever. I think with school, I have to remember, with school-based coaches, they're actually spending less than half their time in our districts, if they were school-based, actually working with teachers to support them in improving their practices. And what goes on in teacher collaborative times, right? Uh, with principals in there and has a particular agenda. So, in other words, school leadership is consequential and we can trace it down to the classroom. What are some of these differences in their agendas? Something Kara and I were interviewing uh, district leaders. We interviewed, I think, six or seven in a day in one district. 
sadly in year three of this data collection, so we're very slow at writing anything up, uh, but we differentiate between two orientations. In other words, the differences in how these leaders frame the problem of improve, improving student learning. In an instructional management orientation, that problem is a problem of how to get as many kids over the line as possible, to have them become, be proficient on the state test at the end of the year. From that point of view, uh, sensible strategies would be additional tutoring, second math classes, and a more sophisticated version would be analyze the test data, find out which standards the kids did poorly on, find the teacher whose kids did the best, and reorganize the school schedule so that all the kids at that grade level are rotated through that teacher's classrooms. We call this instructional management because it's managing available human resources. You're not attempting to help anybody get better, improve their instruction or whatever. Instructional improvement orientation would be reflected in this talk so far. It would be a perspective that sees part of the problem of improving student learning as improving quality of instruction. Would see that as an issue of teacher learning that needs to, and so it would take an educative perspective. Something kind of amazing to me is we've ended up in the position of coming to see value in both perspectives. The only proviso I put by that is we don't see any reason why instructional management always has to be tied to a procedural view of mathematics and mathematical learning. It could equally be tied to a some more conceptual inquiry oriented view. And we would, I would actually say that's an ethical approach to also think about instructional management. Those kids right now also need additional support. How can we support them even while we're supporting teachers and improving the quality of their instruction? So part of this different agenda is just framing the problem. A second part of it is different goals for teachers learning. What counts as high quality instruction? So we need to, we're going to focus on improving teach, the quality of teachers' instruction. What are we aiming for? Getting on the same page in terms of goals for students and teachers' learning. And the last part would be to approach enabling, if you want, teachers to get there from a learning perspective rather than a compliance perspective. Learning perspective is given a nod there, certainly to Mary Kay Kine, uh, Stein and colleagues. Something that came out pretty early when Kira and I were doing all these interviews was a key indicator of whether district leaders took a learning perspective was whether they recognized and capitalized on the expertise of folks in the district who were knowledgeable about teaching and teachers learning, who had the ability, the capacity to actually support teachers in improving the quality of their instruction. But late breaking news from Adrian Labi Sharif, who's here somewhere just finished his dissertation. He focused on school leaders rather than district leaders, but it appears there seem to be strong parallels. The good news from his dissertation is that school leaders do not, and district leaders, don't need to develop sophisticated images of high-quality mathematics instruction. That's really good news, because that's a huge ask if they're not mathematics specialists. Okay? But... What Adrian found, he found a group of principals who didn't have particularly sophisticated visions but were working 
to implement primarily instructional improvement strategies. In each case, that school leader was working very closely with a math specialist or a pretty accomplished math coach, okay? Sometimes they'd reached out to the district math specialist, sometimes it would work the other way around. This seems to be critical, so this is slightly speculative, but our thinking is they don't need a sophisticated vision of high-quality math instruction, but they do need to understand that more ambitious goals isn't just hard as sums. It involves kids developing new uh, mathematical capabilities, that those differences in the goals have implications for instruction, those forms of instruction are beneficial to students and it takes sustained support. Then the expertise of folks who know how to support teachers learning becomes relevant. And there are also indications in his study that that can be influenced by professional development. And so it sort of orients us to provide to suggested a range of goals, what we might be aiming for in professional development for school leaders and district leaders. So that's where we are at the end of the findings. Just stepping back, there's a summary, but I want to close out by just saying this. I'm try, trying to say that content and pedagogy matter all the way up. It matters not just that it's math rather than English language arts or social studies or whatever. Even when we get to the level of district leadership, it matters that it's an ambitious agenda that is also has an eye of focus squarely on issues of equity in terms of students' learning opportunity. It matters in terms of, the, of school leaders and district leaders' practices, of what they need to know and be able to do and so forth. The last thing I'll say is talk about next steps. I told you earlier that uh, about 67% of our recommendations to the districts were taken up. They attempted to implement them. The bad news is they struggled mightily in that process of implementation. The typical story is form but not function. For example, uh, as Manny can tell you, having looked at having knows how many hours of video of teacher collaborative times, Yes, teachers really were meeting, and they were there the whole time, and they were doing stuff that related to math instruction in some way or another. Most of the time, it was not productive. It was not likely to support the teachers in improving the quality of their instruction. There were such cases, but they were pretty rare. The form the teachers' meeting was happening, the function improving the quality of instruction was not. We could tell a similar story about school instructional leadership, Yes, principals really were out in classrooms. Yes, they were observing. Yes, they were giving feedback. But that feedback was not likely to support teachers in improving the quality of their instruction and so forth. So we see the next step, if you like, well, that, this work I've told, been talking about, a major goal of it was to figure out what sorts of strategies are likely to be productive in supporting instructional improvement. We see the next step is to work closely. For us, it means in partnership with practitioners to investigate and how to implement or enact some of these key strategies effectively. And that's, in fact, work we've been engaged in and just been started in about 18 months ago. So that's the lot. Thank you. You've been very quiet and very thoughtful. Right? <laughs>